Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Roe v. Wade in the dock. And Richard, we recently got news that the Supreme Court has agreed to take a case out of Mississippi on abortion, this over a statute that prohibits most abortions after 15 weeks. And the news that the court would take this has led to a fair amount of breathlessness because this has been the concern amongst abortion advocates ever since Justice Ginsburg died, that now you've got a lineup on the court where even if Chief Justice Roberts goes the other way, you could conceivably overturn Roe. And we'll get to that, but maybe it makes sense to start it this way. Give us the thumbnail sketch of the Supreme Court's history on this question leading up to this. And if you would, I'd like you to start us with the day before Roe. So what did abortion policy look like before the Supreme Court got involved? Okay, well, the day before Roe, there was no national belief that there would be any involvement of the United States Supreme Court or the Constitution in dealing with these cases. Uh, To give you but one example, somebody asked Hubert Humphrey when he was campaigning against Richard Nixon back in 1968 what his views were on abortion. And he says, why are you asking me a question like this on a matter which is exclusively within the jurisdiction of the state? Um, I can still recall, because I was actually in academics at that time, a long time ago, the standing joke was how long it would take to laugh the lawyers on behalf of Roe out of court because there's such a uniform line of precedent in both uh, federal and state court on this particular issue. Uh, the leading case was actually an English case called Rex v. Bourne, and they really stressed the importance of keeping abortion rights in place and uh, gave narrow constructions to such notions as an abortion is needed in order to protect the mental health of the life of the mother. Even that exception was read narrowly. Uh, virtually every state had some degree of illegality associated with abortion, some very heavy, some not. Some of them had done that common law rules, although that was started to be disfavored as the principle began to take greater hold in the United States that there can be no criminal offense unless it's a statutory base, which gives fair notice to the world. And so the world was a very tranquil place, and everybody realized that it would go on. There's a fine book written on the subject uh, uh, by my colleague at, at Chicago, Jerry Rosenberg, who said at, you know, the day before Roe, there were many states, including New York, uh, which allowed for abortion. So there were 250,000, give or take, legal abortions in the United States. Uh, people, I think, were reasonably confident that this number would continue to grow and to expand. Uh, to give you yet another personal uh, situation, which I'm sure you don't know about, Troy, uh, there was a case called Cosgrove against Gleitman, decided in 1967, and I had the misfortune in the spring of 1968 to argue the case uh, before the uh, finals of the Yale mocks a moot court situation, and my defense had to be the following proposition, uh, that um, what happens is that if, in fact, uh, a mother is told that German measles can cause her difficult, or she could be told that, and is not told that, when abortion is legal in some other state, is a doctor under a duty to give notice uh, to the mother so she can go to that state in order to get an abortion. And the part of the case that I was required to argue was to say that it was called the so-called wrongful life case, 
which is the fate of a, a child who has German measles or rubella is so horrible that they're better off dead. And I had to defend that proposition. <laughs> I can still remember Judge Leonard Moore comes up there and he says, well, young man, how would you charge this case? And I just rattled off a charge, which sounded like if you, the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, should believe that this child and infant is better off dead than alive, then you should order that child to have damages or his family equal to the difference. And he said, you had that prepared in advance. I said, no, I didn't. I rattled off another charge um, with the same effect, uh, proving that you can take a very difficult proposition and always cast it into a jury destruction, even though the metaphysical problem um, lies. But that was the kind of issue that you had at the particular time um, on this issue. I mean, do you have a duty to disclose? So on the eve of Roe, um, I think the odds were uh, that this is not a long shot that's coming home. I've now learned, as I think many people have also learned on this particular question, if a Supreme Court takes a question in which it seems that they have an interest, uh, you cannot basically say that the odds of this thing done are very small. Um, and that's exactly what happened here. To give you another parallel, every single state, when it came to the Affordable Care Act, said that you can't possibly sustain this thing as a tax. And then the Supreme Court says, let's review that question. And what you have to do once they want to review it is to think it's a serious issue. So we all have I think the wrong kind of bias. And when the case came down, I was actually asked to write about it coming out of the elevator on the sixth floor at the University of Chicago uh, by Phil Carlin. Um, and there were a lot of other people who wrote about this case, of which I think probably the most famous article, an institutionalist article, was by John Hart Ely. Uh, mine was much more a moral piece, saying, I thought abortion was justified. His, rather, the ban on abortions were justified. His position was, this is the kind of thing that legislatures ought to decide. And that sort of indicates two branches of the way in which people think about constitutional law. But that was the kind of the historiography of this particular point. You go from having sanctions everywhere to having sanctions nowhere. One might think that it's a rather big deal. Can you describe for our listeners, uh, for the layperson, I think the abortion issue is so caught up in the, for obvious reasons, in the policy considerations. You have mentioned, you mentioned in your Defining Ideas piece, for instance, that as purely as a legal matter, uh, this opinion is not thought highly of, not only by conservatives, but by a lot of liberals, too. Can you explain sort of the major criticisms of the way that Roe was decided? Yeah, I mean, it, it turns out the history of this is rather mysterious. The The first thing that you have to do is to understand that the sort of the background norm behind all norms, the uber norm in the early 1960s was Lochner against New York, which struck down a state maximum hour laws of 60 hours per week, 10 hours per day, uh, was the quintessential evil of constitutionalism, that these were legislative choices. And then before you got to Roe, there was a case called Griswold in Connecticut, decided in about 1965 by Justice Douglas. And all of a sudden what happens is that you now find that there's a right to privacy embedded in the Constitution, uh, which means that you cannot impose, as the state of Connecticut, a prohibition on the sale of contraceptives. And the opinion then goes seven times or so to mention that this is an unacceptable interference with marital unity, and there's a right to privacy. Nowhere found in the constitutional text, but suffused everywhere throughout it. It's one of the rights retained by the people or whatever. And there was just a huge institutional hullabaloo about whether or not you could actually take this particular case and get that particular result 
given the lessons of Lochner and all the rest of it. And I can still remember my own teacher, Harry Wellington, fretting about this decision all the time, and not because he had any disagreements with its substance. Indeed, the reason why it turned out Griswold was an easy case in practice is that Connecticut was probably the only state in the Union which had this kind of prohibition. Uh, so it was bringing it in line with everybody else, whereas Roe flips everything completely over. Uh, so then what happens is you start getting to uh, the situation in Roe, and the issue that one has to think about is will the germ of substantive due process, privacy rights, or whatever, uh, that seem to take hold in Griswold carry over to this case? And the standard argument that was made on the other side, it would be nice, ladies and gentlemen, if the Supreme Court would tell us where it is in the Constitution that you find a provision uh, which protects this particular right, call it privacy or anything else. And it was very, very difficult to find out whether it was rooted in the due process clause or in the penumbras of the Ninth Amendment or whatever. So all the standard doctrinalists says you cannot have the single most momentous decision in a very long time, surely since uh, Brown v. Board education, and have no constitutional home for it. So it was generally regarded as a kind of a lawless sort of decision at the time, at which point you then had the John Hart Healy discussion. Isn't this something which is sufficiently complicated, given that health and safety are clearly evolved, given that religious predispositions really matter, uh, that maybe you'd want to use the legislature to do? Uh, and I thought that it was constitutional because there was a legitimate interest in health and safety that was being protected in that particular case. And the Ely line, I think, has been more persuasive than my moralist line coming out of this, uh, but the two of them together meant that uh, there were lots of difficulties. I could still remember my then uh, soon to become Dean Gerhard Casper looking at me one day and saying, uh, with my German sermon, oh, Richard, he says, I can't uh, live with Rode anymore. He thought at one time that he was going to be able to make it work in his own mind, but after a while, um, he said no. And then there's the famous remarks later on by Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, I think this might have been a lot more tranquil if it had been done by legislation. And the thing to remember is that legislation was not just simply some will-o'-the-wisp, uh, there was, in fact, a lot of legislative movement on this particular front. And so the legal process people actually had a point. And this is always the case with American constitutional law. There's so many different ways of trying to slice up the apple uh, that you're not quite sure which positions will align with one another and which of them will be sharply disparate. But I think at the time, probably all the way through about 1980 or so, uh, the general view on the part of most ac academics in the United States was that a Roe was a kind of a derelict, uh, one that they liked. I do remember one day, I mean, I could say this now, when I actually happened to visit Justice uh, Brennan's chambers and listen to him talk about it, and he talked about all the hate mail that he received, um, and, that thing, and then was absolutely indifferent to it all. He was absolutely convinced that the decision was right, um, uh, even though he didn't write it. It was done by Justice Blackman. And, and so by the time you got to the mid you know, the early 1980s and so forth, the attitude has started to shift on the part of many progressive scholars to saying, you know, this is an unappreciated gem, and now we have to defend it. And by the time you get to Casey, um, it then becomes a real uh, point of contention between liberal and conservative forces, and it remains that way to this very day uh, with the Mississippi case. Okay, so take us up to today. What's at stake in this case out of Mississippi? If you're a committed proponent of Roe v. Wade, how worried should you be? Well, I mean, what the I'm not sure how worried you should be because what it says, in effect, is they're not going to touch anything 
uh, before the 15th week. They're only going to touch things that are afterwards. A lot of the problems that people had, if you're a Catholic theologian, is that life begins with conception. It's an innocent person. It's like being taken by its mother and her confederates. Um, when she is sworn as a duty to, as a matter of natural law, to provide and care for a child. Uh, so if you strike this thing down, uh, first trimester abortions and a little bit more are going to be there. Uh, what you then have to do is to face this constant question about how much of Roe v. Wade rests upon empirical assumptions about viability and sensation on behalf of unborn children. And Roe originally had a trimester system, and the first trimester was off limits. And that's still off limits. And then the second one was a situation in which you could have some narrowly tailored restrictions. And in the third period, uh, when the fetus was viable, it turns out that the state could impose very strong protections. And this would come at a time when most people do not want to have abortions anyhow. Uh, So I think the first period still remains intact uh, because what Mississippi did was not make the Catholic argument about how it is life begins at conception. Arguments which I, by the way, happen to accept, although I don't do it on religious grounds. What it did is it made the arguments based upon neural psychology, saying that when you reach the 15th week, the nerve system is sufficiently well-developed that abortion turns out to be a process uh, that inflicts pain upon the fetus, even though it obviously cannot express it to us, and that that becomes the decisive feature in this particular case. And so you can see extensive arguments on both the physiology and neurology of this situation and of the relevance with respect to to the argument. Um, I do think that if you were to overrule Roe to the extent that it fiddles with the second period but not the first period, it's a major change. Uh, But again, to stress this, it is not, I think, a change that's going to affect 95% of the abortions that take place in the United States which in my guess would happen before the first 15 weeks. So um, I don't know what to say about all of this, but uh, we do know that this is an outpost and the argument's going to be, if you take down this particular part of Roe and Casey, it's only a matter of time before you go to the conception point and then we're back to back alley abortions and to illegalities of one sort or another. So uh, how this thing will play out, I think is, uh, to put it mildly, highly problematic. So my final question for you, then what's the harder road to hoe for the country that Roe gets overturned and gets re- this gets returned to the states or that this continues to be the central battle around which the Supreme Court is oriented for the foreseeable future, that it's all nationalized? Well, the stakes are high on both sides. I think for the Republicans, if they go for this, uh, what they're going to find is that they will split their economically liberal uh, constituency from its socially conservative constituency, and they'll give a huge boon to the Democratic Party. I also think that it will start to increase calls to increase the size of the Supreme Court uh, to make sure that these conservative devils are not going to be able to control the situation. On the other hand, I do think that if you did go to legislation, uh, you would see many states do what New York State has already done. Namely, what they would do is they would pass a statute saying the rules of Roe v. Wade turn out to be the rules that we apply in this particular state. And so nobody has to worry about the legislative solution. We've planted it in advance. Uh, my own guess, if I had to make a guess, um, and I change from hour to hour on this point, is I do think that the political consensus in the blue states is sufficiently strong 
uh, that the better course of wisdom would be to enact the statutes that they favor rather than to try and create a court-packing incident which would have ramifications that would go much beyond Roe uh, to the entire fate of the United States. So, I mean, uh, uh, you ask me one day, I'm kind of very reluctant to overrule it. Another day, I'm kind of there. When you start talking about pragmatic interpretations like this, you can't say that the factors are illegitimate. Uh, but it turns out that their weights are very indeterminate, and the list of relevant factors continues to change. And so people like myself, the more you hear, the less confident you are as to what the dominant alternative is. And I think literally within the course of a day, somebody could push me one way or another. The one thing you cannot push me on is the proposition that Roe is an original piece of constitutional interpretation was dead wrong. Uh, but the issue is what you do when you make a mistake in one generation when it comes to the next generation is one of the single hardest questions that's found in game theory. And it's one of the single hardest questions that's found in the law. All right. Well, before we go, I just want to let our listeners know about a change that is coming to the Libertarian podcast. Richard and I have been doing the show together for eight and a half years. We have something like 650 episodes to our name. And it has been one of the most enjoyable things I've ever had the pleasure to be a part of. I'm going to make Richard feel his age by saying that he has been an intellectual influence of mine going back to college. And I never could have imagined that we'd not only one day be colleagues, but also really great friends, which is exactly what I consider him. Uh, alas, however, as a lot of our listeners know, I've started this do online endeavor called Kite and Key, and I've got a book coming out next year. And while my friend Richard can do 18 things at once and never slow down, uh, I do not possess that gift. So I have had to downshift some things. And as a result, this is going to be my final episode of the Libertarian Podcast. Richard has been very understanding in between screaming at me for it. But there is good news, which is the first of which is that the Libertarian Podcast will continue. And the moderator's chair is going to be very ably filled by our Hoover Institution colleague, Tom Church, ensuring that the role remains a, a rotten borough for Pepperdine alums. And also, uh, because there was one podcast series I just didn't have the heart to leave, uh, you will still be able to hear Richard and I together every month on the Law Talk podcast with John Yu, right here from the Hoover Institution. So let me just say, in closing, my thanks to our producer, Scott Immergut, who has helmed every episode, to our terrific, loyal audience, and most of all, my thanks to one of the world's great minds and one of my great friends, the incomparable Richard Epstein. Well, and thank you, Troy. You bring tears to my eyes, I have to say. This has been a wonderful experience for me, and I'm sure it will work out well with Tom, and uh, he's been a good friend for many, many years. Uh, but this was a special relationship, so I am truly sad to see it end, and I wish you every success in every endeavor that you undertake including, of course, Law Talk with me and the irrepressible <laughs> John You, But thank, thank you again for a wonderful experience. Thank you very much, and I'll be listening to you guys. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.